Well, it is summertime, and that means two or three things. One, it's hot, uh, so I know that you, some of you begin to pick your parking spaces now, not based on distance, but based on where the best shade is, uh, and so that's one of the signs of summer. Another sign uh, is a lot of you start going on vacation, which is great. I hope that you have a great time, but the third thing that is true around here in the summit is, uh, at the summit in the summer, uh, is that we always end up having some of our bre- best preaching and teaching uh, during the summer. I'm not really sure why that is. I don't really plan it that way. Uh, in fact, it doesn't make much strategic sense to have some of your best stuff happen in the summer. Uh, but just the last several summers, it seemed to work out that way. And uh, this summer is already shaping up to be just like that. Um, we're going to begin our third and final segment of uh, this series we've been in for about a year or so, going through the book of Acts. It's a series called Sent. And uh, I've already been, you know, studying ahead uh, a little bit for the rest of this summer. And there's just some great stuff in the last part of the book of Acts that I am very excited about getting to. And I think you're going to love as well. Plus, I have some great friends that are going to come in at various points in the summer and are going um, to be helping us out. So uh, I know you'll be traveling all around the globe this summer, but I would just encourage you. I think it's going to be a great summer. And I think it's going to be a lot of stuff that you don't really want to miss. Um, well, in case you forgot or you are joining us for the very first time, uh, the book of Acts tells the rather remarkable story of how a group of ordinary people, uh, blue collar workers and tax collectors and a few women, that started the greatest religious movement in history. The story, uh, by any measure, whether you're a Christian or not, just the story itself is really rather remarkable. Never had a larger assignment been given to a less qualified group of people. After Jesus is raised from the dead, a little review here with you. After he'd raised from the dead, he gets his disciples together, this little ragtag group um, in Acts chapter 1, and he, he announces to them on the side of a mountain, your job now, right, is to take this message and to spread it all around the world and to make disciples of people in every nation. And then Acts 1 says, after he said that, he just floated off up into the atmosphere. And you got to think about what that moment was like for them. I mean, here they are, and he just floats off. It's Acts 1 says he goes up through a cloud and just disappears. And they're kind of looking at each other, and finally one of them says, does he, the whole world, does he know how big the whole world is? And the guy's like, well, yeah, I mean, he can, you know, see it from way up there. He's, you know, he's got to know how big it is. Um, and then they, you know, they just, they, they stand there, and then, and then, and then they begin. And, and somehow, here we are, 2,000 years later, as a result of what they, began to, what they began to do. How did they do it? How did that group of people who had never been more than 50 miles outside of their hometowns, didn't speak you know, other languages, um, how did they start the largest religious movement in history with no money, no education, no power, nothing? The answer we saw the last you know, time we studied this was really two things. One, um, they... And Jesus gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit, which was his spirit, which would guide them and empower them and build the church. Jesus said, um, I will build my church through you, not you're going to build the church for me. Uh, you get this sense, studying the book of Acts, that they're being moved by this unseen hand. Half the time, the disciples are doing the wrong thing. Um, you know, the, the Holy Spirit is overcoming what they do, so the, the, the apostles are not the heroes. It's this, this force that is moving them. Uh, I, I've showed you that the, the very first verse in the book of Acts, Acts 1-1, Luke, who is the author of Acts, is also the author of the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke says, the former book, meaning the Gospel of Luke, I wrote to you to tell you all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. 
well, began to do and teach implies that he continues now to do and teach um, things in the book of Acts. So in other words, it's not that in the gospel of Luke, it was Jesus that was doing all the work. And now in the book of Acts, it's the church doing the work. Um, it's that Jesus started through his incarnate body in the gospel of Luke. And now he is continuing his work on earth through the church. Um, so one is he gave him the Holy Spirit. The second thing that, that um, was true of them that made them so successful is they were absolutely certain of the fact that Jesus had raised from the dead. And what that meant was that whenever they encountered an obstacle or some kind of opposition, that's what they fell back on. When they were confronted with questions they couldn't answer or they got into arguments that they couldn't win, they were like, well, well yeah, but, but Jesus rose from the dead. You, you, you ever been in an, in an argument with a really smart person who was just much more knowledgeable and much more educated than you, and you knew they were wrong about something, but you just couldn't show them that because they're just too good with words and too good with arguments? Well, it seems that the apostles got in these situations a lot. Peter, for example, in Acts chapter 4, is in the midst of this argument with the religious leaders, and finally he's like, look, I realize you guys are way more educated than me, and I realize you're way smarter, but here's the thing. There was this guy, and he was dead, and then he became alive. And no offense to your education or your intelligence, but if I got to choose between guys who have degrees on the walls and another guy who crawled out of a grave, I'm going with the guy who crawled out of the grave. Right? So, 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 so that, if you really believe, let me just ask you this, if you really believe that Jesus raised from the dead, wouldn't that change how you approach difficult questions? I mean, you know, like a lot of times people ask me, they're like, you know, um, I, I just have this problem and, and I object to this and here's why I'm not a Christian. And I, I usually ask them, I'm like, look, let's just say they're right in the middle of this conversation, right here, right now, Jesus just appeared, rose from the dead, right here in front of your eyes. And he said to you, hey, that's a great question. There is an answer to it, but I'm not going to give it to you right now. In fact, I may not give it to you even while you're alive. You may have to wait to heaven for me to answer that question. I asked him, if you saw that, would you be willing, no, watch this, would you be willing to suspend your unbelief because the Jesus who raised from the dead told you to trust him for a few years? And they almost always say yes. And I say, so the issue is not your objection. The issue is the fact that you're not really convinced that Jesus raised from the dead. Because if you're convinced that Jesus raised from the dead, it actually gives you the ability to believe through things that are really difficult. We explain faith around here as the unexplainable, that's the questions I can't answer, meeting the undeniable, that's the fact that Jesus raised from the dead. I believe there is more than sufficient evidence to show that Jesus raised from the dead, and that's what propelled the disciples through the most fierce opposition. Um, when they faced obstacles they couldn't overcome, when Rome had put their leaders into prison, when their families were being fed to the lions, when they had no money, they said, yeah, but Jesus, see, he rose from the dead. And if he could overcome that obstacle, he can certainly overcome an obstacle like no money or the fact that the Rome's against us. Church, if we believe that Jesus rose from the dead, what kind of confidence will that give us in our mission as we go forward to make disciples of people in Raleigh-Durham and all the different parts of Raleigh-Durham and all around the world? And the answer is it gives us great confidence. So Acts is the story of how this earthly community that is filled with the spirit and sure of the resurrection with no money, no power, nothing else to their name, spread that gospel message over the, over the entire planet. And along the way, Luke, who is the author of Acts, is gonna stop to tell you these stories about things that happened to this first church so that you and I can learn from their example about the church that we are a part of in our day. And that brings us to Acts chapter 15. So if you have a Bible and you haven't opened it there yet, Acts chapter 15, we're going to begin right in verse 1. The church encounters a problem. 
that I'm going to tell you could have significantly derailed the church had they not handled it exactly the way that they did. I don't want to overstate this, but this was a subtle danger that didn't look that dangerous on the surface, but had they not done it the way that they did it in Acts 15, you and I would probably not be sitting here today. Now, I'll also tell you that a lot of people, and when they preach through the book of Acts, I've noticed this, don't preach on this text because it is about a theological debate, and theological debates can be boring, right? right? But this one is going to answer some really important questions. For, for example, what role should politics play in the church? I mean, like Republican and Democrat, that kind of stuff. How should we talk about that in the church? How should we handle gray areas like, is it okay to drink alcohol? Or if marijuana is ever legalized in North Carolina, is it okay for a Christian to smoke marijuana? And what do you do if people in your small group disagree on those questions about alcohol? How, do you, how should you handle that? And, and, and even, what should you do when a new believer cusses in church? Some of you are like, this passage deals with, with all that. Yep, I'm going to show you that. I'll show you right at the end, but let's unpack the story first, okay? Um, verse 1, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, a lot of the first Christians were Jews, and Jews had been raised on Old Testament law. And one of the most important Old Testament laws was that you needed to be circumcised it was a God-given sign that separated the people of God from the people of the world. So a lot of these new Jewish Christians were teaching. They were like, look, if you really want to be a child of God, it's right there in the book of Deuteronomy, you got to be circumcised. What this meant was that the new members classes in the early church primarily consisted of women and children, right? <laughs> uh, the women all went to starting point, and the men were out in the car going, ah, I'm just not so sure about this. I need to pray about this for a few weeks longer. Um, verse 2. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go back to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders to talk about this question. Now, you should keep in mind that this is right in the middle of the Apostle Paul's ridiculously successful missionary and writing career. Um, he's planting churches in places all over the world that have never had a church. On top of that, he's writing books that you and I are going to still be studying 2,000 years later. Um, if you're an author and you have a book that's still being studied 10 years later, that's considered wildly successful. Um, here you got Paul writing books, all of which we still study 2,000 years later. Um, my own wife could probably not tell you all three books that I have written. Um, Paul is in a ridiculously successful career, um, and he's going to stop, and he's going to go back to Jerusalem on foot, mind you, um, which is a long way in order to talk about this problem. So whatever this is, is so significant, he's willing to stop planting churches and stop writing books so that he can go back and deal with this. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And there, after there had been much debate, which means a lot of yelling, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just like he did to us when we believe. He made no distinction between us, the circumcised, and them, the uncircumcised, having cleansed their hearts by faith, just like he cleansed our hearts. Now, therefore, why are you testing God by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? You see, there were 613 Jewish laws. Circumcision was just one of those. There were 612 others. And Peter's looking at everybody. He's like, I don't know about you guys, but I never felt like I was keeping them all, and I was born a Jew. 
I mean, first, I could hardly keep them straight. How, how long were we, how far could we walk on the Sabbath again? Could we eat llama meat? Was that un, un, unclean? How about turkey bacon? Does that make the cut? Um, what about yoga pants? Is that a forbidden fabric or is that just bad taste for guys? Um, well, you know, what's, what's, no matter how hard I tried to keep these laws, I never felt like I was measuring up. Did you, Thaddeus? How about you, Bartholomew? Did you feel like you were keeping them all? You, Matthew, did you feel like you had a good track record on those? Well, no, if we could barely keep those laws ourselves and we were born Jews, why would we project this burden onto Gentiles? Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. In other words, none of these laws saved us anyway. They didn't make us closer to God. It wasn't what we did that made us close to God. It's what Jesus had done. We put faith in what Jesus had done, not in what we were doing. That's what saved us. And so if that's what makes him close to God, why are we projecting this burden onto him? Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent. And then they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James, who is, you recall, by the way, the half-brother of Jesus, I've told you that before, which is one of the big reasons I believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead, because James is now the de facto leader of the church. He's the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, I, I've told you it's, it's an easy concept to get your mind around. Um, you, how many of you have an older brother? Raise your hand. What would it take to convince you that he was God and raised from the dead, right? That's going to take a lot of convincing, right? Um, James believes that his older brother is God. Um, that just shows me that it's legit, all right? James replied, brothers, listen to me. It's my judgment, therefore, that, listen, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I would like to suggest that we engrave that phrase into the cornerstone of this church and we engrave it into the heart of every single member who is a part of our church. Any obstacle that we can eliminate, any opposition that we can get rid of, I think we ought to. Even when it involves preferences for things that I really like in church, even when it involves things that I've gotten very comfortable with. I think about it, you see, when in my preaching, in my preaching, I don't want to make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God because I use a bunch, of, a bunch of terms they don't understand. I don't want to become a church that is full of cliques that are nearly impossible to penetrate and make it difficult for Gentiles to turn into God because they just don't know how to get along here. Nor do I want to make it difficult because we present as a church this artificial facade that makes everybody think we got it all together. And so people come in here and they're like, I got nothing in common with these people, right? I mean, maybe you've been in church for so long that you've forgotten this, but, 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 but if you're kind of far from God, you show up, you know, you got all these people walking around like, looking like they step out of a J. Crew magazine and they got their big old Bibles under their arms and, you know, with the naked baby angels in the front and they're smiling at each other going, how are you, brother? I'm fine. God bless you. And God bless you. And then they're looking at it and it's just like, I just don't, I don't know if I belong here. Right, because everybody here so looks like a stock photo family, and, and, and I just don't know if I belong here. In the church that I grew up in, you dressed up. That's just what you did. I mean, if you had a three-piece suit, you wore it on Sunday, that was your Sunday best. Right, and, and, and they did that as a respect to God, and so I'm not, you know, totally dissing on that, but there was a woman in our church who would never dress up. And one time I asked her, and she said, it's because there are people who come to this church whose lives don't look anything like everybody here dressed up, and I want them to see at least one person here who they can say, well, at least somebody else here is like me, and I belong, right? See, we have to make it not difficult for Gentiles who are turning to God and how we do our church. I don't want to make it difficult for guests drawn here 
when they hear God is at work here, but they get here and our facilities are a mess, the parking is, is, is disastrous, our kid rooms are overcrowded, all because we don't have enough volunteers. See, I would not stand up here and yell at you about the need to volunteer because I want you to do a good deed. I'm doing it because I don't want us to make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. I don't want to make it difficult for people turning to God because I mock or speak condescendingly about people who are on the outside because that's what turned a lot of people off to church to begin with. I don't want to make it difficult for African-Americans or Asians or people of other races that are turning to God because we have no multicultural representation in our leadership. And so they assume that to become a Christian means you capitulate to some other culture that's not yours. I don't want to make it difficult for those struggling with same-sex attraction who are turning to God by stigmatizing that sin or treating it as if it's any different than my own. You know, I, I talked to a, a lesbian girl. I ran into her out in the community somewhere, and she said, she said, you know, I go to your church on and off. She says, I go, let me tell you why I go to your church. She says, it's not because you say what I always want to hear. She says, in fact, you make me mad a lot. She said, but, she said, but I go there because you don't treat my sin as if it's any different than yours. And I get this sense when you open the Bible that you're just telling me what God says and you're not changing it to fit what I wanted it to say. And she goes, while I don't agree with it yet, I at least know you're speaking to me in truth and I at least know that you don't treat me as any fundamentally different than you. I don't want to make it difficult for people like her to come uh, to, come to God. I don't want to make it difficult uh, for, for Democrats to come to God by mixing secondary political positions in with the gospel message. I don't want to make it difficult for Republicans by doing the same thing. I don't want to make it difficult for Duke fans to come to God by, <laughs> by rubbing it in their face that they got eliminated in the first round this year at the NCAA tournament. I don't want to make it difficult for state fans by pointing out that they haven't had a great team since 1982. I just, you catch my drift in all this? Listen, we got a message that is life or death. And there is no other message, secondary message, no matter how important, no matter how much I love it, that should ever get in the way of the primary message because the primary message is the only message that God has given me to make famous in this area. Verse 20, instead we should write to them, the Gentiles that is, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. And you read that and you're like, what? I mean, it kind of seems like a random list, right? Don't have immoral sex and don't choke animals to death. You know, like, all right. So what is this about? Well, sexual immorality, um, sexual immorality, in the pagan world, sexual immorality was just accepted as the common practice. Nobody thought it was wrong. To say it was wrong to save sex for something only be, to be done in marriage was as foreign to them as it would be on a, you know, in a college fraternity today, right? And so um, it, he is saying to them, remind them that the moral commands of God have not changed. Now, let me make this clear. Um, the moral command, why did he only pick that one? He's not saying that it's okay to murder and lie and steal, just don't have sex outside of marriage. It's just that that one was the only moral commandment that Gentiles commonly accepted as being okay. You see, for 2,000 years, Christian theologians, listen, have distinguished between the moral commands of God in the Old Testament and then the, what we call the ceremonial or the religious or civil commands that are in the Bible. And what he's saying to them is tell them the moral commands of God are still in effect because God doesn't change. And what God thought was impure 2,000 years ago, he thinks is impure today. Okay, all right, you say, okay, well, that explains that. But what's with the not eating meat from strangled animals and from blood and the food polluted by idols? Well, those things were really offensive to Jews. 
You see the next verse, verse 21, where he says, you know, in all the synagogues this is read. What he means is all Jews kind of live this way. Listen, this is important. So tell the new Gentile Christians to not offend the Jews. Don't make it difficult for other Jews to, to be around them because they just do things that are flagrantly offensive to them. Everybody was like, whoa, wait a minute. So we just went from 613 laws down to two, which are basically avoid sexual immorality or, and, uh, and uh, don't offend the Jews. I mean, that's quite a reduction. By the way, I hear a lot of people say this to me. Um, you conservative Christians, you don't really take the Bible seriously. You just pick and choose the parts of the Bible you like. They always point to Leviticus. They're like, see, you obey all the stuff about sex, but well, what about the st- stuff about the dietary restrictions and not eating hamburgers with cheese on it and not wearing polyester and that kind of stuff? Um, why do you obey the Bible on sex, but not on these other things? You're inconsistent. <laughs> no. See, we are under the authority of the Bible until that authority tells us that part of it is no longer binding. We're not picking and choosing and putting aside the dietary and the ceremonial restrictions We're just putting aside what the Bible tells us to put aside. The Bible tells us to continue to observe the moral dimensions of the law because God doesn't change, and we can put aside the ceremonial, the dietary, the fabric restriction because Christ has fulfilled all those things in his life and death. So we're just doing exactly what the Bible tells us to do. It's not not inconsistent. Verse 22, they sent Judas then, not the one who betrayed Jesus, by the way, because remember he was dead, but another one. And Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Greetings. Verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. That you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what's been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Toodaloo. (laughs) Imagine the excitement reading that letter, by the way, if you're a Gentile. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement, and all the men went to the new members' class the very next week. (laughs) Andy Stanley, who was a pastor down in Georgia, talks about several drifts that this text warns us to avoid. Drifts that the early church, by Acts 15, is already facing. Drifts that we, as a church, and every church, are going to face as well. I'm going to use a few of, of, of his, and then add a few of my own. Every church, listen... And every Christian will face these inevitable drifts, both in the church's mission and in your personal Christian life. Here they are. Number one, the drift from a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders. The drift from a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders. Every church you see tends to do this. When we first got started as a church 12 years ago, I didn't plant the church. We relaunched the church 12 years ago. We were so focused on reaching those people on the outside, you know, because that's just how we, that's what we had to do. But see, now we're established, right? And now we've, you know, got a lot of people coming and now uh, you got a big budget and we got a lot of, we, we got needs, we got preferences, right? And so it's so easy for us to start thinking about ourselves. It's hard for me for a couple reasons. One, I, first of all, I have my own preferences about what I want our church to be. Secondly, I, I want to make you happy too, right? I mean, I want job approval to be high, and you're the ones who determine that, and so I want to make you happy. Plus, you're the ones that write me letters and tell me things you don't like in the church. People on the outside who aren't coming to church don't write and tell me the reasons they're not coming to our church. I don't get complaints from them. I get complaints from you. So I want to reshape this church around my preferences and around the things that make you happy. 
but we ought not to make it hard for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So the question is not, what do I prefer and what do you prefer? The question is, how are we going to reach those that God is bringing to himself outside of our church? In everything we do, I got to be considering people who have no voice here. Is what we're doing making it hard for them? It is sad, and I don't mean to be judgmental here, but it is sad to go into churches. You walk in there and you feel like that there's a group of people that have been sitting in the same seats since the Revolutionary War, right? <laughs> the average age is 78. If you're 40 years old in your mid-40s, you're in the youth group in, in that place. I walk in these places and I'm like, man, if the 1940s ever come back, these people are going to be ready, right? They're going to be cutting edge when they do that. But they won't change. Even though they know they're not reaching the next generation, they'll complain about that. They're like, oh, we're not reaching our, you know, we're not reaching no young people in our church, but they're not going to change. You want to know why? This is sad. It's because they love their traditions more than they love their grandchildren, it seems. We ought not make it hard for the Gentiles, whether those Gentiles are our children, whether those Gentiles are our neighbors, we shouldn't make it difficult for them to come to God. And when I first became pastor here, about three weeks, seriously, after I become pastor, there was, we were cleaning out a closet and we discovered a um, big old beautiful set of handbells. Remember, remember that, you know, those things, uh, you know, so we, uh, we uh, did some talking and we decided that we should replace the handbells. And we should sell them. That was uh, what we decided to do. Well, um, about three weeks after that, now I've been pastor here for about six weeks. Lady, sweet little older lady comes up to me and says, I heard you're going to sell the handbells. I said, yes, ma'am. We were planning to sell the handbells. She said, uh, why are you going to sell them? I was um, tempted to lie. <laughs> I said, well, we feel like we need to replace them with some new musical equipment. She said, my mother donated the money for those handbells 30 years ago. What musical equipment are you going to replace the handbells with? And I was like, I just got to own it. I said, we were going to purchase a couple of electric guitars. <laughs> and I thought, Lord, is this the end of my pastorate? <laughs> and then I looked at her and I said, man, I said, your mother is with Jesus now. We know that. And she said, yeah. I said, don't you think she'd want us to do with that money whatever we could do to reach her grandchildren, your children, and then her great-grandchildren? Don't you think that's what she would want to do if she's watching from heaven? And the sweet old lady, older lady, looked at me and she said, well, that makes sense. And that was the end of it. <laughs> that was the end of it. Twelve years ago, there was a group of people at this church, listen, that decided that they would not cater and pacify to the insiders. Instead, they would devote themselves to a passion for the outsider. In fact, there are many of them that are still with us. I know they won't be at every campus, but at every campus, if you were one of those who were either with me when we started or you preceded me at the church, uh, just raise your hand for a minute. Just hold your hand up. See, there's a handful of us that are still here. You, you see this? They came to a place 12 years ago that this church in Acts 15 came to. We held our Jerusalem council on a night in January in 2002, and there they decided that they would be more concerned about advancing the mission than preserving the tradition. And don't you think it was easy for them? We gave away the choir robes. It actually happened a few, you know, a little bit before I got there. But we gave away the choir robes. We sold the organ to a funeral home, by the way. It's where we sold it, where, you know, it belonged. But, you know, we, we, we sold the organ. And they said, we're going to do this so that we reach that, and because they did that, you're sitting here. 
By the way, if you're at a campus and nobody raised your hand a minute ago, realize that you're now at a campus that exists in part because of an act of, faith, of faithful, selfless generosity by a group of people you never met 12 years ago. And I can assure you they didn't do that so that we today could devote ourselves to preserving our preferences and our tradition and to lose the impulse to advance the mission. Every church in every generation has to ask the question, are we more concerned with pacifying the insider or a passion for the outsider? The drift from a passion for outsiders to pacified insiders. Number two, the drift from grace to law. The drift from grace to law. The, the, the ones who were calling out for circumcision were saved people. They believed they were saved by putting faith in Christ. But see, after they were saved, they started to drift back toward a rules-based relationship with God. Because see, that's what always happens. Martin Luther said the human heart is hardwired for works righteousness. Works righteousness means the idea that it's what you do and how well you do it that determines how God feels about you. To update Luther's analogy, we're like a car severely out of alignment that the moment you take your hands off the wheel, it veers into the ditch of thinking that it's how well you keep the laws that determines how God approves of you. Now, our list, our law is different. I would say probably that circumcision is probably not a big deal to most of you anymore, right? That's not a big deal to us, but we got our own list of things. And we say about those things, well, if you do these things, these are going to make you right with God. And these are going to show everybody else that you're a good Christian. They're never bad things. They're almost always good things. Questions like, you involved in ministry? You doing a quiet time every day? You involved in a small group? How many people did you share Christ with last week? Do you adopt kids? Do you have a perfect family? Um, have you ever been divorced? How much money do you give? All good things. But these become the measure of our spiritual lives and the measure by which we evaluate others. Not only, listen, does this make us lose the gospel in our own lives, it makes it really difficult for other people to come to God because they start seeing a, a, a type of profile that they have to fit before God will accept them. You ever been really lost? I mean, like so, like physically lost, like so lost, you don't even know where to, like, where to turn or where to start to get back. Um, anybody that knows me knows that I have a notoriously bad sense of direction. Of all the brain cells that God gave to me, thank you, of all the brain cells that God gave to me, I have chosen to direct none of them toward direction, okay? I use them all for something else. And so that means that I just cannot, I mean, I'm the worst. And the worst for me is whenever I go to a new city, um, like, you know, I'm traveling, if I'm staying downtown, I just think it's the coolest thing to get up in the morning and go running in downtown. That's a horrible idea for me because every single time it happens the same way. I run for 15 minutes and I'm always like, I have no idea where I am. I have no idea how I got here or how to get back. I don't even know where to start to get back, right? You just feel so lost. I don't even know where to begin. Do you understand that there are people who come into our church that feel that way spiritually? I have no idea how to get, even get back to the starting point. And we got this thing where we, 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 we present there for them like, oh, this is what it looks like. The gospel is, listen, that Jesus has done everything necessary to make you fully right with God. And you believe not in your ability to fix yourself, you believe in what he has done to save you. And by believing that, you are reconciled to God and made right with him. And we don't ever want to communicate to people that if you'll look like this and talk like this, then, then you'll be right with God. Because they're like, I don't even know how to begin that. What we want to communicate is, listen, you're saved not by what you do, but by what he's done. When Jesus said it is finished, he meant it was as finished for you as it was for the most religious person on the planet. And by believing in what he did, not in what you can do, you will be right with God. 
So you'll see this drift from grace to law, which leads to a third drift. After you drift from grace to law, you're going to see a focus on internal transformation shift to one on external conformity. A focus on internal transformation to one of external conformity. The gospel's focus, you see, is on transforming the heart. Jesus said the essence of all the law is to love God with all your heart and to love other people. He said, if you do this, then you'll keep all the laws. That's the essence of what it means to be a believer. Now, let me just be clear on this. The Bible outlines for you what love for God looks like. You're not just like, well, I have warm feelings toward God so I can, you know, have three wives and that's just how I love God. I mean, the Bible tells you what purity and justice and what love for God looks like. But the point is, it grows out of a heart of love for God. Listen, and that heart of love for God is produced by faith in Christ. The way we say it here is, listen, love for God in you is produced by embracing the love of God for you. It is not becoming a religious, righteous person that makes you love God. It is understanding what God has done for you in Christ. Believing that is what produces that heart of love for you. It is the love of God for you that produces love for God in you. Well, when places that lose the gospel, in places that lose their focus on the gospel, they begin to replace a focus on inward transformation. It becomes less about loving God and loving others and begin to put an emphasis on outward conformity. And when that happens, inevitably, you got a whole host of things that become laws that determine whether you're spiritual or not. And they're not always bad things. It's just like, well, this is externally what you should look like, and that determines where you stand with God. Now, in those days, it was circumcision. And like I told you, I also don't feel like there's many of you that probably that's a big deal to you anymore. So let me give you a few that are common in our church backgrounds. All right? Alcohol. Alcohol, whether you should drink alcohol or not. I grew up with teetotalers. You know what a teetotaler is? Somebody who doesn't drink for any reason? Our church was teetotaler. I mean, we were 110 proof teetotaler, right? You just never drank alcohol for any reason whatsoever, right? And, and, and if you'd ask them why, they actually had really good reasoning. The Bible often speaks very negatively about alcohol, warns us of the dangers. You know, one out of six people who drink alcohol become an alcoholic. I saw a New York Times article this week that said that same thing. One out of six people who drink alcohol become an alcoholic. And their reasoning was, I wouldn't keep a dog in my house that bit one out of six people. I wouldn't walk around with a gun that randomly shot one out of six people. Why would I keep a drink in my cabinet that destroyed the lives of one out of six people? One out of 10 children in our country grow up in a home where there's alcohol abuse. There are 100,000 alcohol-related deaths every year. And if that is your thinking, and for that reason, you do not drink alcohol, listen, I commend you. That is very conscientious, it's very loving towards your fellow man, but there are other Christians who say, well, just because something's abused doesn't mean we should get rid of it totally. Sex is abused, do we get rid of it? Words are abused, do we all remain silent? Food is abused, do we stop eating? And if you wanna talk about things that kill, last year there were 100,000 deaths related to alcohol, there were 300,000 deaths related to obesity. Nobody's advocating getting rid of all desserts. Well, I mean, actually a few people are, but you know what I mean. And they'll say, even though the Bible warns us that alcohol can be abused, we clearly see people in the New Testament who are drinking fermented beverages like Jesus, you know. <laughs> Paul at one point even prescribes a little alcohol for Timothy. Well, those are also good arguments. So rather than leave this as an issue of conscience, some churches pick a side and make it law. 
If you're going to be a member of this church, you better sign this covenant. This is what we do here. It just seems to me that we ought to leave this as a matter of conscience. And we should, like they did there in Acts 15, we should try in deference to each other not to offend. Isn't that the spirit of what's happening in Acts 15? I'm not going to make a new law. But I'm also going to be very conscious of people that are around me. See, if, you're, if you just heard that right there, especially the second part, and you're like, oh, yeah, can't wait to get back to my small group. I'm going to be like, in your face, as I open up a Heineken in front of them and be like, I told y'all, right? <laughs> that just shows how, much of the, how little of the gospel you actually understand. If your attitude really is so selfish and all about me that you would say, well, forget what everybody else thinks. This is what I'm doing. I'm free in Christ. Then, you know, it just shows you how, see, we love each other. And we are following our consciences. And listen, when you have a church full of people that are not uniform about some of these things, it makes for some really interesting unity, doesn't it? It'd be easier if we all disagreed on everything all the time. (laughs) I told you, I've told you before, in my marriage, it made for some interesting unity. Because my wife comes from a Presbyterian background, and they are free in Christ all over the place. All right? (laughs) And so, you know, I've told you that when we got married, our compromise was I made her quit drinking, I baptized her, and I consented to the fact that it was all predestined to happen. Uh, That was the way that we we, we formed our union. Her pastor, her Presbyterian pastor, told me when we got married, he said, the only difference between a Presbyterian and a Baptist on the on the issue of alcohol, it's Presbyterian will actually wave hi to you in the ABC store. Um, The alcohol, the Baptist will pretend like you're not even there. Right? So it's been it's been interesting as we've formed this more perfect union. But the point is, listen, this is what gospel charity, it's what it leads us to do, right? Uh, here's another one, Christian appearance or vocabulary. Christian appearance and vocabulary. Some of you grew up in churches where Christians dress in certain ways, no tattoos. You shouldn't have a tattoo on your body, you know, because this is the body Jesus gave you and you shouldn't mark it up or poke it up with any piercing. So that's just what, and if that's your conviction, seriously, that's fine. I understand, you know, why you would think that way, but let's not make that into a new law. Or how about this one, um, the use of profanity. Uh, hear me out on this one. Christians have a certain way that we talk, and we have reasons for that. That's fine. You don't hear me using profanity, right? I don't want to judge somebody else's heart, especially somebody new, just because they haven't learned to talk like us yet. You follow what I'm saying? Now, I'm not saying it's okay to you know, just go have at it. I'm just saying I understand that external conformity doesn't always match internal transformation. Um, the other day, I was standing right down here after the sermon, a guy who was pretty new to our church, I could tell, he just sort of gave off that vibe, walks past me and stops and says, Pastor, that was one H-E-L-L of a sermon. And I said, thank you very much, <laughs> right? He doesn't know. He doesn't know that that's probably not how you compliment your pastor. I love it. I love it. I was sitting in a discipleship group with a guy who was a brand new Christian, and I was describing something, I mean, something awesome about God, and I was describing this, and he's just looking at me, his eyes are just wrapped attention, and he goes, he's with his mouth, I saw him, he kind of whispered, he was like, he said, D-A-M-N. I was like, he just worshiped with a cuss word. I mean, seriously. Now, after a while, he'll probably figure out we don't talk like that, and there's a reason that we, you know, talk in different ways. But the point is, I don't want external conformity to eclipse what God is doing in somebody's heart. Politics. Here's one. I think the Bible needs to shape how we think about everything. I think we need to learn to think biblically about everything from taxation to immigration reform. But for a lot of people, certain positions become like religious law, an external sign of whether you're right with God or not. And listen, maybe you're right about your political position. Maybe you are. Maybe you've got good reasons. And I'm not telling you you should soften on their position, but I don't want to make it hard for the Gentiles. 
who are turning to God by making some secondary thing a gateway to the first thing. Let's have the discussions, but let's have them in the right way, and let's never make them the main thing, because the main thing is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hey, I'll give you the perfect proof of this. Jesus had 12 disciples, right? You ever, you ever read, you probably read right over this and never noticed it. One of the disciples was a guy named Simon the Zealot. You know what that means? He was a guy that believed that Israel ought to secede from Rome and do whatever it took to get away from them. You also had in the list Matthew the tax collector, which was a guy that took up tax money for Rome. You had a Tea Party conservative and a big government liberal in the same group of disciples. And somehow Jesus brought them both together, and I'm sure they had some great discussions around the campfire. But see, the point was, listen, the main thing remained the main thing. And so people of wildly different political positions could come together and find the gospel in the same place. Those three shifts, those three drifts destroy the forward movement of the church in every generation. Do you remember what they are? I don't. Hold on. Um, (laughs) From a passion for outsiders to pacifying insiders, from grace to law, from a focus on the internal to a focus on the external. Guys, this was a moment. It was a moment of subtle but incredible danger for the church. It could have ended the rapid expanse of the Christian movement right there in Acts 15. Many churches go through this same chapter and they don't make it. And they're dying. Do not get self-righteous and do not think that we're past this chapter. Every year we got to re-go through this chapter. I don't want to make it hard for the Gentiles in our community who are turning to God. I don't want to make it hard for them. And so I'm always going to be asking the question, not what do you want, not what do I want, but how do we make it easy for them? If the gospel is offensive, let's make nothing else offensive. And if you're not a Christian, listen here. Let me tell you what you should take out of this. God wants to know you. That's the gospel. God cares about you. He cares so much about you that when you were alienated from him, he came to earth to rescue you and died in your place, suffering the full penalty for your sin in your place so that you could be reconciled to him. No matter how lost you are right now, no matter how lost you feel, you can be fully reconciled to God because the basis of your reconciliation is not in your ability to fix yourself. It's in what he has done on your behalf. Jesus' last words on the cross were not, go fix yourself and come back. It was, it is finished. And if you will believe that it is finished on your behalf, you can right now, this moment, be fully reconciled to God because it is finished for you. All you got to do is receive it. Maybe you've been overwhelmed because you look at a church full of people and you feel like, I'm just not like those people. Listen, it's not becoming like us that makes you a believer. It is simply believing that Jesus loved you, that he did it all in your place, that he wants to know you and receiving his gift as your salvation. Have you ever done that? Because this church exists and we're going to try to declutter it so that you can always hear that. Why don't you bow your heads if you would with me? you're a believer, here's what I want you to be praying. I want you to be praying, first of all, that the people that are around us here at the Summit Church at all of our campuses who've never become believers would do so in these moments here that they would receive the gospel. Why don't you just say a prayer right now? And then why don't you ask God to make us a church where the gospel is clear and no secondary preference or message gets in its way. If you're not a believer and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, this is the gospel 
This is the gospel. It's very simple. God loves you. He wants to know you. He died for you. He bore your sin. He offers to come into your life right now, cleanse your sin, and begin to make you new. You'll change after you become a Christian, I can assure you. But you don't change before you become a Christian. It's not clean up your life and come to God. It's come to God and he'll, he'll clean up your life. If you've never received him right now, just say to him something very simple, if you mean it. Jesus, I surrender to you as Lord and I receive you as my Savior. God, make the gospel clear and beautiful in our place. In this place, we pray in Jesus' name.